Hi, my name is Ajne Dawkins, and I am a new Dominique Fishback stand. Oh, I love that for our best. <laughs> hey, my name is Brittany Rogers, and Detroit is starting its like second spring, so I'm hoping that it sticks around this time. And we are your co-host of Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Hey, co-host. Hey, co-host. I'm excited for today. Me too, best. Um, listener, you're in for a treat. Today, we got to speak with the incredible Jackie Germain about the role that surveillance plays in her work and how St. Louis functions as its own character. Oh, it's good stuff. It's very good. I love Places character. It's my jam. Um, but before we get into that, best, I want to talk about the characters that we've hated as opposed to St. Louis, which is a character that we love, right? Yes. So what are characters from books that you were just like, I absolutely cannot stand this character? Start the list. <laughs> Midnight. Your arch nemesis. My arch nemesis. Midnight from The Coldest Winter and the then trilogy that came afterwards. That man can count his days. <laughs> That man will answer for his crimes. Rock Nation will crumble. Not Rock Nation will crumble. Oh, I didn't read Midnight. Oh my God. I read The Coldest Winter Ever, obviously. Read all of the Midnight series. And this man despises Black women. And I don't know why. <laughs> why this man is like uplifted as this ethical protagonist. This man hates me. <laughs> And I just cannot be convinced that I was not reading this story from the purview of a man who despises me and my mama and them. Like that's so real. Ooh, that's, that's like, so real. So he he's at the top of the list. It's a long list, but I'm a I'm a rest my case right there. What about you? Who's your most hated? Ooh, um, mm, yikes, also male. Um, but Kevin from Kindred by Octavia Butler. Mm. That's a character who. I read and was like, why are you here? Why are you here? I don't want my girl Dana to go back and save you, not marry another time. I don't want you to come back with her. I don't want her to go looking for you. That is just a character who I felt like contributed nothing positive to the text. Nothing to give. And I really, that, you know, if I could just sit down and talk with, you know, I I, I have questions. I'm going to just say that I, I have questions. They may be offline questions, but That's, I need some answers. I respect it. Um, a character who gives us nothing. Um, <laughs> I'm like, girl, this the one you love. A, like, a character, all of the <laughs> who is completely unuseful. Um, who does nothing but add difficulty to, to our lives. Lineage and you got accusations. Like, what is this? What is ah? Uh, hard to love. Hard to love. Can't do it. Oh, okay. So let's let's pivot to uh, talking to Jackie about characters who we do love. Yes. Jackie Germain is a poet, journalist, and former community organizer living and working in St. Louis, Missouri. She is author of Bittering the Wound, her debut full-length collection of poetry selected by Douglas Kearney for the 2021 Cap Poetry Prize and published by Autumn House Press in 2022. And When the Ghosts Come Ashore, her poetry chapbook published in 2016 by Button Poetry. She has received fellowships from the St. Louis Regional Arts Commission, Jack Jones Literary Arts, and Callaloo Creative Writing Foundation. As a journalist, her reported articles, profiles, and political commentary have been published in The Nation, The Guardian, Vice, Artsy, and elsewhere. 
Most recently, Jermaine served as Teen Vogue's 2021 to 2022 Economic Security Project Journalism Fellow. Hey, all right, let's get into it, best. Let's get into it. Jackie, we would love if you would do us the honor of opening the poem. I would love to. This poem is from my book, Bettering the Wound. Uh, it's called Pick One, It Says. One, after a nightmare, on a cool night empty of moon, my mind reshuffles its terror into a fresh swatch of colors fanned across my eyelids. Pick one, it says, as I fall asleep, my skin a kaleidoscope of leaking holes. I think, yes, this makes sense. Some days there was a whole ankle lodged in my throat, toenails digging into my kidneys, dragging my torso across the city. Some days my body reshuffles itself to get a better view, streamlines the blood flow with a new curtain. current. Don't worry. In this version, you survive, but without your collarbone. In this version, you do survive, but hairless, skinless, breathless. In this version, you survive, but dismembered. Your legs here and there, your elbows here and there. An eye socket rolled here, your pelvis shattered there. In this version, you survive and swallow the meetings, the hours, the marches, exhausted, the tears, the gas, the laughter, the dead phones, lost friends behind the trees. But the police line looked like it was moving towards the mouth of the parking lot. And there's a fence back here, y'all. There's a fence back here. We can't get out this way. They'll kill us. They'll kill us. Run, not that way. Run, come here. They're going to go behind that building and block the alley off. They're blocking the alley. Go, go. Did you see where he went? I can't find, can't find him. Can't find him. Go, go. Go, come here. Call me when you get, call me when you call me when you call. Get to the car. Can charge your phone. Get back home. Safe. Two. After a nightmare, the body responds. Don't be mad at me for this. It is a gift. To watch the terror congeal in your sleep and see you survive it again. Look at you, shocked upright in your bed by your own screams. Look at you, sobbing the abyss off your skin. Look at you, all terrified and still here. Jesus, listener and reader, hopefully, this is why you need to get this book because the line break between don't be mad and then at me from the body listen you have to be able to see that you can't just listen you got to be able to see that which is why you need to order bittering the wound posting because y'all heard <laughs> that. it's a very serious contemplation over here i was just about to leap into craft and enjambment but i was like okay Brittany, back it up let's let's open with a classic can i ask first what's moving you these days seeing people like grow in real time and like take risk to grow in real time has been moving me lately. I have like a lot of faith in people's capacity, like humans' capacity to do better, um, but very little faith in like our willingness, right? Like I very much believe we have the capacity, but I'm very skeptical of our willingness, of our d- discipline, like all sorts of things. But every time I get like proven wrong and like seeing those sorts of things in real time, seeing people step into their power, seeing people ask questions, seeing people push themselves, seeing themselves, seeing people take risks to like, that's definitely something that like will move me to tears is like seeing people see their own power and like move in it. You can, it's like in their eyes, like when it clicks, like, oh, I, me, me with my own body 
with my own voice can do the thing with other people. Now you messed up because now we know how strong, you know what I mean? Like seeing that, like, like in people, <laughs> especially when it's like, when it's like in adults, right? Like grown people with families and stuff, seeing that like click for the first time for them in different spaces, like that makes you feel like you can take on the world. You know, I find that really moving. I think that is so beautiful. Oh my God. Yeah, I love that answer. I love that so much and very much so feel always believing in capacity and being skeptical of willingness. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how how things shake out. <laughs> Listen, we together because I be like, people ain't no good. <laughs> I think I'm thinking especially about teaching. One of my favorite things about teaching is watching kids and youth and young folks have epiphanies like that. Um, and I don't think I'm as mindful of it in adults. So thank you. I think that has like given me a new thing to look for. For sure. One of my um, really close friends, Ariana Brown, incredible poet, incredible poet based in Texas. Um, but I remember like several years ago, we were talking to each other over Facebook, actually. This was back when I had Facebook, so you know, it's in the, the annals of history. Okay? You said it's been a minute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember she said, I think I'm kind of paraphrasing, but she essentially said to remember that like, everything we need we already have right and seeing the moment people realize they have the thing they need is like I don't know it's it's just such a it's such a like it's such a moment of it can be such a moment of like rupture right of like transformative in so many respects like in big and small ways but like see like witnessing that moment for other people I think it's just such a, a cool thing to be a part of yeah, because now that you know, it could just be me, but I'm like, oh, no, when I know things, now I have to do something about it. <laughs> so when you say rupture, I'm like, oh, that's a big, who that's a big thing. That's a big move. <laughs> okay, so speaking of new things, I'm wondering about, I know that you were a staff writer at Teen Vogue, and you just put this bomb-ass book out into the world. So I'm wondering if the culmination of those projects has opened up anything new for you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think, um, I think after just like putting out so much, like just like externalizing so much um, over the last two years, I'm really looking forward to, which is funny because I think probably people in real life would, would probably just describe me as having been like really introverted the last two years just because I've been so busy. And, um, but I think it's because all of the energy was put into like producing things and like putting things out in the world and, and work and all these kinds of things. Um, so I'm really looking forward this year to kind of pour back into myself and like get back to a bit of a balance that I think works better for me. And I think through that, we'll then be able to like produce differently, but I think also at a pace that feels more natural to me and is a little bit less um, chaotic. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, ex I'm excited to like listen more this year and take more time and be more creative, take more risks. I feel very, I think the thing that's very different about this year is that I feel a lot more confident in like the journalism work and like that part of my life. Um, and I'm really looking forward to kind of reinvesting in the poetry side of my writing. Um, in my head, those things live together, but I've struggled a lot in the last couple of years or just in general I think I've struggled figuring out how to balance the two properly like I said like in my head those things they like make sense together like my organizing background makes sense with it like all of it like is in the same pot in my head but like I think externally 
figuring out how to juggle those things has been um, has been a lot harder. And so I think this year, by like feeling more comfortable, I think confident in my journalism and kind of like um, being able to do that a little bit more easily, and then also being able to kind of reinvest more time in poetry because um, that was kind of my first. I mean, I'm very much my first writing love. So focusing around that, focusing on my book and sort of like congealing a lot of those things together, I think I feel much more capable, but also feel like I have a much better handle on like what kind of a pace I want to create. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward. I've taken a lot of naps the last two months since leaving the fellowship. It's been a game changer. Listen, I did not know. If you told me (laughs) kindergarten me, preschool me, that I did naps would bang this hard when I got older. I used to, I was that kid that like cried. You know what I mean? I wasn't trying to take naps when I was little. I wanted to dance and run and like do stuff. But like now, what a gift. Naps go crazy. <laughs> they go crazy. <laughs> so when you use the language of pouring in you, to yourself, is that the kind of thing you're referring to is like focusing on poems napping that kind of thing or were you saying these are things you're working on and then pouring into yourself was like it's a, its own category one of the things that I figured out is that pouring into myself is just doing things that feel meaningful to me um so it includes it, it just anything that yeah anything that feels meaningful so spending time on my poetry is like pouring into me like it, it just feeds me to like do that kind of work so does like going to like exhibition openings like we have such a great we have a banging art scene here in St. Louis and like it's all free um and I have missed very much going to shows in like the last couple of years of, of the pandemic um and getting that kind of like creative stimulus I've always really really enjoyed um reading a lot more too is something that feeds me so much reading I was talking, I was talking about this on, on on Twitter not too long ago about how much I've enjoyed the last couple of years inserting like young adult and children's books back into like my reading circle I think I was on like a I was doing a lot of like academic and nonfiction um, because that's kind of where my brain lives um but it also like really enjoys like adventure and playful and like all these other sorts of things and so like inserting those books back into my reading routine First of all, those books hold like so many of them hold up. Like they're so good. They're such great stories, and it also just like I think it it contributes to a kind of like elasticity for me that I really I really enjoy. I'm very much someone who still loves like cartoons and like like I'm very much like that person who like loves a Bob's Burgers, loves a Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. Like I love, you know what I mean. Like that's that's still very much part of yeah. But it's like I don't. It's like for some reason at some point I like did not make a point of enjoying those things anymore and so part of part of like pouring back into me is like doing the things that I genuinely um enjoy that feel meaningful even when they're hard you know what I mean but just like the things that make me feel satisfied and make me feel grounded and like in my bones you know um yeah and 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 I think that kind of thing at least for me requires slowing down which is, I think, part of the reason why it feels like this is like the first time I'm able to like really spend time doing those things. So this is the first time I've really been able to slow down in a little bit. I don't know where to start. So listener, again, we're, we're going to assume that we are all on the same page and that we have bitter in the womb. But if we don't, we're going to all get it so that we can be having the same combo. Um, but something that I love very much about this book is like 
a super lifelong person for my city was the the very intimate way that <laughs> you approach St. Louis. Listen, I feel like Chicago folks, Detroit folks, <laughs> you as a St. Louis person, New York folks are all very consistent, very diehard. And I love the way that that showed up in your work so much that I felt almost like there were times where St. Louis was a persona. I felt like there were times where St. Louis was the speaker. Um, and it was a blending that was happening that I felt like was very, very beautiful to me. Like, I'm like, oh, everything is living here. Everything is alive. Everything has a voice and has autonomy, which I think is so important for me as a reader, especially thinking about a city that has been so publicized and been in the news so much and all of those things, being able to give that place back its voice. Um, and I'm wondering... So if I'm reading St. Louis as a persona, as a character, I'm wondering what things you have in common with St. Louis and where you and St. Louis diverge. First of all, thank you so much for that. Um, I mean, on a on an unserious note, people from St. Louis love Emo's pizza and I think it tastes like trash. Um, it's basically cardboard <laughs> with like a substance that's like inspired by cheese on top. Like it's, I don't, um, Ooh. yeah. Comfort. I mean, like, I stand by it. I've, I've lived in the city for so long and I've stood by it. So we can have a conversation offline. But um, on a <laughs> more serious note, um, we're very similar in that we aspire to be a big city, but it's just not, it's not in the cards. And I don't think we actually really want it, you know? Um, I thought for a long time, for example, that I was going to move to Chicago and I've spent time in Chicago. I love Chicago. Chicago's great city. Chicago's too big for me. Like I am a small town Midwestern. It's, mm. it's just, I got to just sit with it. I'm not, I'm not the girl that dreams of going to New York City. It's too much. It's too loud. It's too mm. dirty. It's, it's beautiful, but it's, it's, I, I can't do it. You <laughs> know what I mean? Happening. St. Louis is a, an amazing city, but the best parts of St. Louis are are all the things around downtown, not downtown. Because um, mm. it's just, it's not that kind of a city. Like, it's just not that kind of a city. All of, like, the gems and all that stuff are, like, the neighborhoods around the people, the, like, thing, you know what I mean? Like, the the, the neighborhood, the family uh, restaurant that's on the corner of the corner, if you know the right street, to, like, those kinds of neighborhoods and stuff like that. So, um and it's still relatively like residential, right? It's still very much a driving city. There's public transportation, but it's not big city public transportation. Um, the ways that we're different, I think, I think St. Louis is incredibly confident and sure of itself for all the things that it's been through. And I understand why when you like know the people here, that that is a kind of confidence and self-assurance that I still aspire to, for sure. People here know themselves in a way that I think is like super beautiful. And it just like, like, it just like, the first thing that, the first thing that I fell in love with was about St. Louis was the people here. It was, I can still remember one summer, I was walking down the loop, which is like several blocks in St. Louis that have a whole bunch of storefronts and restaurants and like everyone goes and kind of hangs out there. And it was very early on when I came to walk, when I came to St. Louis to go to undergrad. And it's not like this anymore, but that summer, there were so many black people hanging out there. And it was so dead at, there were so many people that it was faster to park your car than to try to drive down because there were just people in the street, people hanging out, people on the stoop, people in the just people laughing in the sunshine, enjoying each other, enjoying, you know. And I, I just like fell in love with the city. And that is, that is, 
like self-assurance that I'm still working on. That is such a real answer. I'm just like, wow. No, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that answer. So I have a question. Can you talk about your relationship to the reader when you write, edit, and publish? Because there were moments in this book where I felt like the person, as the reader, I felt like the person who was interrogating the speaker. I I really appreciate you picking up on that. It actually kind of touches on, or at least makes me think about something that Brittany said earlier, which I also really appreciated that the book felt like, you mentioned that you could, it felt very St. Louis, right? That there's, there's, there was a kind of specificity there that you recognized. Um, and that was, a, that was really, really important to me for this book was making sure that people from St. Louis could see themselves, but like specifically as opposed to like, as a, as opposed to kind of a general, um, like description of St. Louis, I guess. I wanted to have things that other people might not recognize and like be aware that they did not recognize them because I wanted um, I wanted the distance to be apparent, which I'm so glad it came through because it's not something that I, it was something that I, I wanted to come through, but I, it's one of those things where it's just like, you never know until like someone tells you that it was successful, right? Um, I think that tension was was like so palpable during the uprising, right? It was like, for people, for those of us in St. Louis, the distance between our experience and people watching from the news or watching via live stream or like the journalists who were there, like the space, I think the space between us or just like the, I felt, I think a lot of us felt like we wanted people to understand that people were, were missing things, that things were falling through the cracks, that like there's a way that the specificity of that experience is just not going to be fully legible to everyone else. Um, and it's not like a value judgment. It's just like, it's just like, it's just different, right? Like you can't, I don't think it's useful to us to collapse the experiences. I think specificity is, is really important and really powerful. I think sometimes specificity can like um, be used in unhelpful ways, but I think that specificity um, on its own, I think is something that we should not be afraid of, even if it's alienating, right? Because I think it also on the other side of that is really humanizing to other folks. Um, we all want our stories to be told with, with the specificity that we experienced it, right? And the only person who's able to like really do that is like, you're, like you and like people who might have experienced something with you, et cetera. And all of those stories are powerful. All of those stories are important. The specificity of what it meant to witness that, the specificity of what it meant to see that on a live stream, the specificity of like seeing a thing that you can't physically experience but having all these emotions while you're watching what happens if the live stream cuts out in the middle of something happening that you're you know what I mean like there's specificity there too um and I think I wanted to kind of draw out that tension a little bit um in the book and like wanted the reader to be a little bit uncomfortable and the reader to be aware of like um just that there's just that there's like distance there that it's that um and that, that distance is okay. I think the thing that I had to work through for a very long time was was not to um, make like moral judgments about that distance, right? To just say that like all of us at that time were doing the best that we could. Things were chaotic. Things were crazy. Things were very new for a lot of us. Hindsight is twenty twenty for a lot of those experiences. But like so many of us were just doing the best that we could for each other and for ourselves, and like trying to take care of ourselves at the same time. And so. I think, I guess I want people, I, I'm fine with people feeling implicated. I think, I, I think I do want the reader to feel implicated, but I want the implication to, to be just that we all, we all deserve specificity and like 
if we aren't capable, if we don't have the capacity or the ability or the access to necessarily relate firsthand to that specificity, that we should all acknowledge that like there are things that we probably don't know about this experience, right? Um, there's no universal, this is the story of the Ferguson uprising. There are so many people there. They all have their different experiences. They all came from, this is my, this is my story about my experiences. You know what I mean? And I think hopefully with the book too, the idea is that the reader will then take that implication in the way that they look at other moments of political rupture or crisis or, um, protest or uprisings or movement periods right that you look at those and say like there are things that are for sure missing from this story that this isn't like the totality of it there's still things to learn from this there are still people that will never be in any of these books who are fundamental to xyz happening the way that it happened like i i guess that's the thing that i want people to remember is that like um hopefully hopefully the thing that sort of carries carries from this book in terms of how the reader relates to the poems that I think that we should all be sort of humble enough to to remember that these moments are like messy and that there are always going to be things that we don't know. Thank you so much. I, the, it was a generous answer. It was a very generous gift because I think I'm, I'm reflecting on like, I think the first time I read it, I felt like it was a lot of indictment of like surveillance and voyeurism and things like that. Um, and then I also felt like the book as a, as a whole was so much of an anthem, but very much an anthem for and from St. Louis folks, right? And I think that there is a way sometimes as writers where we feel like we have to make something appeal to the universal. So I appreciate you just, you know what I'm saying, laying that on the table that every experience is not universal. Every experience is not ours to claim when it's not ours to claim, right? I love that. Thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot. Cause that, I mean, when I, when I think of like even poems, I think poems about Chicago were kind of the first that modeled that for me and like reading poems about Chicago with specific things in it that I didn't recognize. I thought we're so like, I, there's, it's so beautiful to see that belonging on someone else, to see that intimacy on something. I don't have to own it. I don't need to know it. I don't need, you know what I mean? It doesn't need to be mine for me to appreciate it, but seeing what that looks like on someone else is, is so beautiful. I, I second that, and I think everything doesn't belong to us, even when there were things like I'm thinking about when everything with Ferguson happened. And for I think especially if you were Black, it was like, this is all of ours. A lot of movements have a lot of visibility, um, and that visibility makes something feel closer than it is, um, and, and aspects of like... Uh, shared identity make us feel more involved than we are in the way a space is evolving. Even thinking there was a poem about somebody who came down to like be like, okay, I'm going to like help Ferguson. And in that poem, I immediately got it because I'm like, wait, now I think the, because then it puts the implication that like the city needs saving and that there are not people on the ground who are working to save themselves. Echoing some of what Ajane said and that we felt there's the shared grief of being Black in America, but then there's the specificity of being in St. Louis while these things are happening, and then the specificity of organizing in St. Louis while these things are happening. Um, but I feel like people, there was a while where people were tweeting stuff like, you know, they took out everybody in Ferguson. So like, you know what I mean? Don't yeah. say that because you know what happened back. And I feel like I remember yeah. you saying something like that is so wild because we are not there are people here we're still here <laughs> we yeah. live here and we're still organizing yeah. here and 
our movement is not gone. And I think that that's something that's important to, I think it's it's very important that you wrote this book and that this book exists. I really appreciate that. Thank you. No, yeah, I um, I mean, I will say something that I'm, something that's sort of a through line for me in this conversation too, is that like the idea that multiple things can be true at, at once, right? And so there are ways that we, in doing the best that we could and doing the best that we can, often it, often contradict ourselves and often have to figure out how to navigate wanting multiple things or asking for certain things or losing nuance here, you know, what have you, especially in moments like this where things are so chaotic and moving so quickly. But even in talking about like, kind of to, to go back to Ajane's point for a brief second, that like that, that was the idea that they both of you sort of reading it sort of felt implicated or alienated, but sort of like recognized that you weren't in that experience um, of the actual uprising. So like part of um, the reason why I have the, the poem in there about Canfield, for example, was to impl- implicate the protest movement itself for treating Canfield that way, right? Um, mm. So, I mean, Canfield was its own its own neighborhood, had its, its families, its neighbors, you know what I mean? And like, we very much mm-hmm. with the best of intentions some of which was like very much under the blessing of people from Canfield, but some of it wasn't, right? It's not like we knocked on every single door and asked if they were cool if we come and post up here every night and get for them to get tear gas. People up and down that street, the tear gas, I mean, they were just, they were shooting that stuff, right? For weeks. Um, and we were out there for months, not necessarily in Canfield, but like in that area and stuff too, right? And so the question is like, yes, we, yes, there, there are poems in like the book itself is like implicating the reader and sort of the, the broader public as like um, in its role of like witness in some ways. Um, and there's also a way that like we as a protest movement, I guess in, in the same way that like you could make the argument that like the public um, sort of flattened Ferguson in a way, I think there's an argument to be made that the protest movement flattened Canfield in a way as well, right? And then in the same way, with what Brittany is bringing up, even in that poem, right, that we're implicating the person who's sort of calling Ferguson a war zone, et cetera. We also, at the same time, were asking for help, right? Ferguson October was about this like big national call for folks to come to the city. And so what does it mean to both say that like, there is a way that people came and sort of like, as I say in a book, we're trying to play other anarchist dreams, right? But also we needed, fo- we asked folks, to- we needed folks to come. It made a difference that, crowd that that made a difference you know what I mean both of those things can be true you know and I'm hoping that those those things that like I think contradictions are like very human and I think the more we do this kind of stuff the messier it is and the more those contradictions are going to be present and so I think (laughs) I didn't offer really any answers uh, in the book but just like offered some uncomfortable feelings if you would like to hold them with me (laughs) essentially (laughs) A little discomfort I never heard nobody. But I don't Thank you. I, don't, I agree. I, for me, <laughs> I think for me though, my overwhelming feeling reading it wasn't discomfort or even uncomfortability. I don't think that the distance made me feel uncomfortable. I think that if anything, the speaker to me felt protective. And I think that's something that I have a lot of endearment for. And it could be like we said, you know what I'm saying? Just that background of coming from cities that people are talking about like all the time (laughs) that they are not in but for me it was like more of a protective reminder that like hey we can but not all like that 
or even the way I'm thinking about my aunties to be like, okay, you can you can sit at the table, but you can't talk about all the business that we're talking about. You can hear some of the business, but you can't talk about all of the business. Right, <laughs> so it very right. much gave me that vibe. And for me, that is a very familiar, very endearing hmm. and loving act to draw that boundary and to draw that line. Um, so it wasn't something that gave me a feeling of like discomfort reading it. It didn't turn me away. It just was like, look at this. Look at these layers of boundaries. I, lo- <laughs> I love a good boundary personally, <laughs> so... <laughs> It was my jam. I love that. Let me see. I I love thinking about it like that. I do. I guess I yeah. I do feel. I do feel very protective. I do feel very protective because people people here went through so much. People here went through so much, and the bulk of it was just us alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like us and us and each other and the police or whatever else was like going on outside. Yeah, people went through a lot. People lost a lot. And I think that's that's the other thing that like people sometimes forget about these moments is that like people lose things, lose people, lose jobs, lose houses. Lose, I mean, I dropped out of college that semester. I lost my degree. Like people lose things. I know like a degree is not like, you know what I mean? But like, but yeah, it's a loss. I'm wondering if there's anything you wish you were asked in interviews or when talking about your work, um, whether it's this particular book or other things um, related to you and your, your life. I guess my, for some reason, my first thought is going towards like, not necessarily me, but like the question I wish more poets got asked in general, um, which is, I, I think I'm always curious about people's lives outside of poetry like what is the stuff that's happening around poetry for you because I'm always because I'm I don't know I'm always curious I feel like I have so much and I think it is also the result of not having focused on poetry or not having sort of a singular focus of poetry as kind of the work that I do or the way that I see my writing and 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 work kind of broadly but I I think it's really interesting and sort of fascinating to know the other the other things that create like the universe for a poet, like within which their poetry lives, if that makes sense. And again, because like those things for me, again, like they're all in the same pot in my in my head. And so like I can certainly like pull out poetry and like talk about that specific seasoning, but like in my head, like it's all like ask me about the dish. You know what I mean? Like ask me about like how I see those those like flavors working together like why I cook you know what I mean like I, I'm very interested in all that I think also just because like I like I said before like well maybe I didn't say it but I'm I, I feel relatively insecure about my poetry I think because I'm sort of like trying to get trying to like reground myself in it and so it's a lot easier for me to talk about it as it relates to the other things that I that I think make up my life and my work and the things that I care about and I wonder what what that looks like for other poets I guess so the wider dish for you is that the other work you're involved in are you saying that's like the things that you have your hands in that have nothing to do with the process of writing um some I mean some of it is also part of the process of writing but it's like I I just I find so many things besides poetry that drive my poems I mean the bulk of it is sort of like my political commitments right and the political project that I'm personally invested in is sort of at the forefront of my poetry, my journalism, my organ, like all of that stuff. Like that's sort of the thing that sits at the core of of that of all of those things, and is kind of the connective tissue. A lot of the principles that I um, believe in in organizing, m- most of them, 
bleed into journalism, which I think some like probably traditional journalists would say make like makes me a bad journalist, right? Um, and a lot of those things bleed into poetry, which I think plenty of established poets might say makes me a bad poet, but like those things are important to me and they're valuable to me and, and so I <laughs> I remain committed to them. Um yeah, I mean a, a lot of my a lot of the things that I study inform my writing, inform my perspective on my writing, inform what I think my writing is or is not capable of, the strategy behind it. Like I think um all of that kind of goes into inspiring what and how I write. I think aside from from that though, that like I get ins- I'm a very visual person, so I get inspired by architecture. I get inspired by fashion. I get inspired by design in general. I think I I get really inspired inspired by things that take um like a specificity of craft. Like that's the thing that fascinates me about design or architecture that someone can be like. I use this material for this specific reason, or I put this window here because of the light that comes in at two o'clock so that it can shine on the floor in this way, which is why we like used this grain so that it would show up. And, like that kind of, like this is the shadow at this time of day and it like sets this, this is why we picked the lighting for this area specific to like how we use the room. And blah, like I love that kind of, I love that kind of specificity. And all of that to me is, um, is really inspiring. Um, when it comes to when it comes to poetry, because I think that specificity in poetry is really powerful. I mess with that. It also leads us into our last question for you um, before we play our game. And that question is one that we ask all of our guests on the show. If you could pick three people across any genre, living or non-living, um, doesn't have to be any artistic genre, can literally be uh the girl behind the counter at your favorite beauty supply store the person at the street at the corner store who you know go look out for you uh every saturday whoever it is for you right three people who readers would need to engage with deeply in order to understand your work who would those three people be i'm gonna say maybe we'll say joy james um i think that her i really appreciate how kind of how how politically principled and intellectually consistent she is and the way that she doesn't shy away from contradictions and sort of like can see those contradictions as generative. Um, And I think just in general, the way that she is kind of consistently critical of her relationship to the academy and aware of her relationship to the academy while also trying to subvert the academy and, and produce these sort of conversations that are deliberately in service of undermining the police state, the surveillance state, empire, sort of all of those things, right? Uh, and, and But like is still asking questions. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I mean, I think Toni Morrison is another one for me. She was sort of the first, <sighs> Beloved was the first book that sort of broke open language and its possibilities. It's really, I think it's a really, um, I think it's really, really clear evidence of like, a skill and talent to me that like Toni Morrison's genius is in that she knew the rules well enough to break them on purpose, right? Um, she had the tools in her toolbox in order to be able to like move the way that she wanted to move deliberately. You can do an incredible thing once, but to be able to know what you did so that you could do it again or something different on purpose, I think is, is really, is a level of skill that I've, 
I think I'll probably be aspiring to for kind of the rest of my life. But I think her 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 reach, dude, like <laughs> the kind the kind her references, like in her books, like her like the way the command of language and the breadth of literature and her references, the audacity, right? To like make some of the decisions that she makes in her books. But like particularly beloved for me. Those that was the first of, of, of her books that I read and also right the passage where that everyone remembers where like you couldn't tell who the speaker was right at points not using punctuation all these sorts of things I remember being the only one in my class that was like moved by it everyone else was like I don't understand this so why are we reading it and I was sort of like can you believe I don't know you could do this in a book like (laughs) (laughs) I was like what yes that like totally that totally broke things open for me I was going to say Jean from Bob's Burgers and that felt that feels like it feels it feels true but it also feels like an, a deeply unserious answer but Jean is playful in a way he's like playful and chaotic in a way that I feel like is true to myself at my core and I do think that that informs my work I don't know you I don't know if you can like engage in Jean rigorously you feel me but like there's a there's a way that you he can. is <laughs> There's a way that he is sort of like, and you see the moments that it happens in the show, but there are ways, there are ways in which Jean is like, just before the point at which we become ashamed of all, of all the things we're supposed to be ashamed of, right? That like, like Tina's past that point, you know what I mean? Tina's like drenched in shame all the time. <laughs> but like, Jean is like on the precipice, he's like experiencing those things every once in a while, something will happen and like someone at school will like make fun of him for singing it, like whatever else, right? But he's just at that point where he's like still doing ridiculous things purely because he wants to do them. And like the logic with which he sometimes makes decisions is like, I have to like, I have to like make a bunch of caveats and qualifications to like trust that logic now, I feel like. Like I talk myself out of making decisions that would make me happy for like whatever reason. And it feels like Gene is still very much in that place. Yeah, I think that's probably a good, a good answer for now, for today. Okay, Jackie, so today we're going to play a game called Fast Punch. And before I explain the rules, I have to ask if you want to be an optimist or a pessimist. I would like to be a pessimist, please. Oh, spicy. Okay, I like it. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask you for the worst thing in a category, like kind of rapid fire. And I want you to think, say the first thing that you think of. You can hold to it. It's our true answer for today. So we're going to call out a category and you're going to give us the worst thing in that category. Okay, you ready? (laughs) Oh, my anxiety. Okay, let's do it. (gasps) It's okay. It's not a lot of questions. I promise. Worst kind of pizza. Oh, emos. Sorry. Um, I mean, um, yeah, but yeah, emos, pizza in St. Louis. Worst children's cartoon. I was going to say Ed, Ed and Eddie, which I feel like people love, but sorry, I wasn't allowed to watch it. Because the kids fought. My parents were like, we don't want y'all fighting, so you can't watch them fight. I don't know. Girl, I don't know. The worst music to dance to? I was going to say country, but that's probably not fair. I think it's just because I don't um, <laughs> listen to country. But you can bop to country. I think I just don't listen to country, so I don't really know what to do with it when it comes on. That's not true. I can dance to anything. That's not true. But, it, but I wouldn't enjoy it, but, but I could dance to it. But I would say country. 
<laughs> okay, I'll take it. Worst book or movie trope? Okay, for movies, there is nothing that will ruin a movie faster for me when there's a female character you love and you know they're not going to let her stay single. You know she's going to, she, you know the one other dude in the show is going to be the person she, you can't end the movie until she, until they kiss. They got to get together. Just let them be people. That storyline, the unnecessary romantic storyline has ruined so many movies. Every action, why? Y'all are busy. Y'all fell in love? I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Where's dessert? Anything that is unnecessarily, um, like, salty, spicy. If I, want a dessert, if I want a dessert, I want it sweet. I want it sweet. I don't want a creative addition to my sweet. I'm the kind of person who, for dessert, I'll get a chocolate cake with chocolate layers of chocolate icing between the chocolate icing on top. Like, I don't need a, what's the, some salt. Like, I don't, I don't understand. (laughs) Those are my least favorite desserts. The desserts that are confused about themselves. Okay. Jackie, would you do us the honor of closing us out with a poem? I would love to. This poem is called On This Day. Uh, It's for Antonio Martin. The clouds pulled apart from themselves like a damp napkin splitting its own skin. When it came, the night brought a pack of wolves between its gums. There were at least 50 of us. The fresh, sickly syncopated beat of another one bumping through our clammy joints. The lights of the gas station turned the scene theatrical. A cluster of officers lacing navy and black through the pumps. An arm and then another arm, someone yanks a sleeve and a knee bobs towards the pavement, an elbow pressed against someone's chin, and suddenly the bodies are a twist of limbs, slipping around themselves like a fist of particles, frantic and near-materialized, another creature altogether. It's December. The news cameras have found a newly gouged universe in another city. Humvees in St. Louis are old news, always hands and handkerchiefs, a black person alive in the knot in the tortured pixels of some video footage, a wall of rubber and metal rippling across the street. We, the weary, with our soured nerves, turned rotten and bitter with repetition. A new gas station dressed in the ash of the old one. There are no news cameras, no witnesses. Our anger comes unbridled, ballooning and buckling against the skyline. We snarl, snap our teeth, flex our forearms, pace through the wet grass. By the time the brawl begins, it is overdue. Already too late to temper the adrenaline preceding it. We've been licking our teeth at each other for months now, St. Louis and St. Louis again. The news outlet's tongue in other cities cracks and it's just us now, the novelty having withered into the winter. My, 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 how hungry we've been, how eroded our faith in whatever mercy or fear stopped us before now. A flashbang erupts and the scattering is reflexive. My thighs jerk suddenly in the opposite direction. I lose my left shoe, my breath, everyone I arrived with. I'm standing on the tar, lopsided, jarred but steady now. The wet ground soaking into my left sock. And that's it. That's the whole story. Sometime before or after, the quick trip across the street was set ablaze, and a single cop sauntered towards the melee with an AR-15 tight across his chest, and a friend ran towards the flames to warn people, and I had a vision of him being peppered with bullets, so I screamed and and cussed him clean the hell out while his jacket vanished into the crowd. 
Sometime before or after, we were arguing with three police officers anchored in line beneath the gas station's overhang about this impossibly large, broken American thing, and we were shaking our hands, and they were rolling their eyes, and another friend burst into tears, and I'd never seen him cry before, and he couldn't stop, and I saw him fighting it, you know, the kind of cry so fresh and foreign it comes out of a man confused and sputtering, and so I hit him in my shoulder until it passed. But that's it. That's the whole story, I swear. That was a good interview. I'm thinking, I'm gonna be thinking a lot about the consequence of my own gaze, I think, mm. and um, what access I feel entitled to or have felt entitled to. When you say the consequence of your own gaze, what do you mean by that? I think when we talk about things like the white gaze, right, mm. um, or the male gaze, we're talking about the harm of what it means to have something curated for that looking or that onlooking and it's somebody who for a number of social movements has been present as a watcher um like because I'm not in location I'm not in place then I think about my gaze as something that contributes to the demand for public curation mm. and so what does it mean that I am was somebody looking toward people who were and have been in place in movements to report timely, quickly information so that I can feel up to date and feel like I'm doing my quote unquote civic duty. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or yeah. whatever that participation is. And then how's that gaze um, shape or impact people who are actually getting, are actually um, like physically involved in the space frequently hundreds of miles away from me yeah yeah this talk definitely made me think a lot about um not just the implications of gays but about the the millions of ways of surveillance that I don't think I think about regularly or am not as conscious or as mindful of yeah and what those things do to us not just as writers but like as people like what it does to know that somebody is you know constantly watching you like I joke about my little FBI agent and my laptop um <laughs> But like you said, even just like the the gaze of the news or the pressure to report or be the information bearer, like what weight that holds. The pressure to correct when the news is untrustworthy. Oh my <laughs> God, listen. <laughs> to be like, no, <laughs> this this is the narrative. Also, I think that's speaking to a pressure like clean up somebody else's mess. Mm -hmm. And I know like the first thing you can't, you can't process and like clean up at this, or at least I can't, I can't sit down and be like okay who now I can sit in this feeling or sit in what or, or try to sit and sift through an experience that I've gone through particularly when that's like traumatic like I can't process the trauma thereof as long as I'm having to like put on a face and like respond to interview questions about it you know um walk family through it okay this is what happened to document it like I can't document and process at the same time yeah okay then well that's I have one more question for you mm-hmm Thinking about all of these ideas of what it means for us to be um, surveillers and watchers and part of the gaze for the work that other folks produce and the labor that other folks put out into this world, what is something you keep private from your reader in your own work? Mm. Let me ponder, but you know, I love a boundary. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> I mean, 
mean, I, I think there are things that I hold more um, tightly than others. Probably the biggest thing is my children, mm-hmm. whom I adore. But I don't know. I feel like one of my goals is to really my my poetry, my lens, my voice, whatever, is mine and my experiences are mine. And of course, like my daily life is interwoven with theirs, but I'm also, also mindful that their life is is theirs. Mm. Um, and I think that there's like a closeness um, and an openness and a trust that I've been really, that I feel really fortunate to have with my kids. And I feel, you know, like I might reference them in a poem or two, but I also feel like just going any deeper than that is kind of opening, is is inviting others into that relationship or into that process in a way that I'm not comfortable with. Mm. I think that's one of the, I think my relationship with them is one of the relationships that I'm most protective over. Maybe that's, and also largely because, you know what I mean? They're, they're minors, they have their own voices. Micah probably is going to write her own poems. <laughs> She's, you know, angsty and whatever. And I want her to have that space to tell the stories from her purview and not from my purview. That's fair. And I think that makes a lot of sense thinking about your work because you do talk a lot about motherhood and you talk about it all from your interior. Um, So you talk a lot about the interiority of motherhood and what it opens up in you, but not the like the what you are witnessing in your own children. Um, And I think that's beautiful to protect that especially who especially in a world where um children as they're living growing etc are finding their childhoods online for public consumption listen it's so strange to me what about you best this is not a hard rule this is like a 90 percent rule where I'm, I feel very much so in my in my almost churchy bag <laughs> with this and that I protect or keep private what is current in my processing I think I do write a lot from a confessional lens and by the time it hits any kind of public sphere that's old news baby that's a testimony (laughs) okay that's we didn't work through it me and my therapist didn't talked about it me and you didn't talked about it me and the person I was beefing with didn't reconcile um we at the movies and getting drinks afterwards. Um, <laughs> you said after that poem. After that poem. Um, after it goes public to the wider space. So I I will always write through anything I'm processing. But as far as it hitting a hitting a public audience in real time, that's not a thing for me. And I think that is for a lot of reasons. I think in some ways that's also how I navigate friendships. I'm the queen of calling you three days after the breakdown. Ooh, let me tell you Back and better, girl. Three days ago, it was crazy. <laughs> Let me break that down for you. Break down what you missed. Get on my nerves, y'all. That is her favorite thing. <laughs> and disappear. We'd be dis- like, are you good? You're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything's fine. I gotta call you back. Everything's good. I'll call you back. <laughs> and I want you to know that as a narrator, I'm like, it was not fine. I just let me do it. It wasn't fine. <laughs> I know you well enough to know that when you get to being like, no, everything's fine. I'm just tired. Just got a lot going on. That everything is not fine. Dread me. <laughs> Is these are all facts, and the I think the more distance somebody has from me, the longer until they are entered in or allowed to see um part of that progress. And so I think I'm I'm fine with the idea of writing confessional work or even writing through something. But um, and it's not even that I I think I owe anybody answers for the work that I produce. 
So if I'm somewhere and somebody asks me a question, um, I've like received like wildly invasive questions before. Somebody asks me a question, I don't think I'm required or beholden to it, but I never want the reason to be because it's too vulnerable bull of a place for me. Um, I want it to be because maybe I, this is just something I choose not to talk about beyond the stage or beyond the page, um, but not because there is something that could happen in engaging with my work publicly that might re-trigger something in me. And that might be from like coming from slam, <laughs> coming from a space of like being like, oh, trauma will get you scores, trauma will get you all this. And I'm like, I think I'm, I think I'm good on it. I think I'm good on the the function of my work being something that can trigger me or re-trigger me. Oh, that's, that makes all the sense in the world. Like thinking about somebody asking you a question after reading and now I'm crying because you don't ask me about something. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, <laughs> you. Because my plans after I'm trying to I'm trying to shake this thing. I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to eat a good meal, have a good drink. Nobody's trying to go home and be deep, dark and depressed because I read some poems that are still got me tore up that me and my therapist, we still talking about line three. Like, you know what I mean? No, for sure. For sure. I think that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, I like how you said, but I, I like your articulation of the things that we are expected or required to give a reader and being able to draw the boundary and saying, okay, but these are things that I don't want you to have access to, regardless to whether my poetry is confessional or not. Ooh, and on that note, <laughs> yikes, let me go and um, <laughs> think about that in the quiet room. Okay, nobody else see me. Um, wait, so who do we want to thank before we get out of here? To thank my papa, who I might have thanked on the show before, but for a different reason today <laughs> never mind but another thank you listen the reason today is because I did family interviews a little while ago and I went and asked him questions and he essentially refused to tell me anything because he was like, <gasps> it's not going to end up in a poem <laughs> and he would not share a thing and I do mean a th I left with no stories no explanation oh my God. he said I know the vibes no, no nothing <laughs> Thinking about the Boy. difference in our folks, I want you to know that Gloria Jean was always like, not nah, Betty, immortalize me. <laughs> Tell everybody. <laughs> Best, I love that for you. I absolutely love that for you. Nah, he, he, when I tell you, I was like, I had to, he would cut the cameras. That was him. <laughs> cut the cameras, dead ass. Ooh, no, Granny was like, if you love me enough to write about me, girl, I'm a live forever. <laughs> so yes, ma'am, that you that you are. And she is. And she is. Well, you want to thank best. I'm gonna thank my three little folks since they got mentioned in the show today. Um, my little Pisces, Micah. It's my teen. My Gemini middle babies, Eli. And Yang. my <laughs> my Virgo toddler is Gino. And I am endlessly grateful for what they teach me about autonomy, for what they teach me about um, about staying true to the things that you want, the things that you need, even if those needs seem so whimsical in the moment. I'm endlessly for the way that they have made me a much better communicator um, and the way that they really made me unlearn so much of what I knew frankly, about surveillance and parenting mm. and the idea that you have to like monitor everything that your kids do and everything that they say. And I don't think as a society we think about all the ways in which that's intrusive for people who are developing their own selves and personalities and identities and who want to just be able to hold something sacred. Yeah. So I'm grateful to them for that. 
Yes, that's beautiful. Oh, man. Okay. We'd like to thank the Poetry Foundation, Itzel Blancas, Irami Noriega, Ilan Sloan, Send Him, and Only Productions. Until next time. Until I next time. <laughs> Look at those jinx. Okay, go ahead. Please say it. Oh, bye. <laughs> no, I was going to. <laughs> no, I'm going to say until the next time. Oh, okay. Until next time. Bye. <laughs>